0: This is Karen with Coach's Corner Chats. I just want to take a moment to say thank you, thank you, thank you for the support of this podcast. If you haven't done so already, hit that subscribe button and take a moment and fill out a review. It makes a whole lot of help in terms of growing and developing this podcast. Enjoy today's chat. Peace. Hey, this is Karen. Coach's Corner Chats, and on the podcast today, I have Frank Barone and special guest co-host, Tyler Wickham. Frank, where are you at and what are you up to?
1: Uh, Thanks, guys, for having me here. Um, Currently, I am at Angel City Football Club. Uh, We just finished our inaugural season uh, in the NWSL. Pretty exciting stuff. My my role there is uh, head of football conditioning, uh, so kind of the the middle ground between the technical staff and the performance staff, and in trying to to manage that relationship between between the two.
0: Is this your first experience at the professional level? Uh, it's my second
1: at the professional level. First in the women's professional game. So um, prior to um, my last role, which was at the University of Pittsburgh, I was at San Antonio Football Club in the USL. So I was there for uh, just under two years. I worked I worked in the USL prior prior to that.
0: Why why soccer? Why Get into this side of things. Uh, what kind of brought you to this?
1: I, I played soccer all growing up, played all through through my youth, and then uh, had an opportunity to go to University of Buffalo, uh, where I played for a couple of years, and then transferred after uh, a couple of injuries and and wanting wanting a different experience to a Division three school down in North Carolina. At that time, you know, I, I still played through through the rest of my my college career, and I was an exercise science major. That middle ground between do I want to be a soccer coach? Do I want to be a performance coach? Um, you know, strength and conditioning coach is more common nomenclature. Um, through just the experiences that that I had on the intern side, I I went with the strength and conditioning. But a passion of mine, so it's never shied away from those opportunities. So uh, in the college game at Robert Morris, I worked with men's and women's soccer. To then, obviously, the opportunity with San Antonio Football Club under Andy Thompson it was was such a good opportunity for me and, and something I really enjoyed was my gift when I graduated from from my roommate and one of my best friends, uh, Chris mark is a Norwegian player that I played with. Was Raymond Verheyen's uh, football periodization. So that was like my graduation gift, like hey, which obviously uh, for better or worse set me on this path and. and Thompson, who was the director of performance at San Antonio Football Club. Part of the expert courses uh, that Raymond puts on, he's one of the, the leading experts in, in football periodization. So I got the education from one of the best in the world. And you know, our first conversation was, uh, you know, my, my interview was football periodization and having the right frame of reference and not sounding like too much of uh, set me on the right course. And has really moved me to where I want to be, which is not just a strength conditioning coach, but somebody who can speak across all the departments as a football conditioning coach and seeing football <coughs> as a starting point. Point, and then strength and conditioning as a lens that you can see football through. So that's where I like to sit right now.
0: What's the steps that you take to get that first, like you brought up Robert Morris and UNC. UNC has a huge history of like really, really good soccer on both the women and men's side.
1: My first opportunity in university was at the university I was at Methodist I worked with uh, football I worked with American football for a semester then over the summer between my last year of college I worked at North Carolina Central University which is a HBCU in Durham North Carolina I worked with football basketball baseball whoever was around over the summer to complete my last semester of college and then I actually got an internship at Robert Morris University so again all of that year and a half two years was was working for free I interned at Robert Morris for six months and then got a part time job at Robert Morris, which SNC coach means you're making like $8,000 a year or something like that and, you know, working 60 hours a week. And then that transitioned itself into an opportunity at, at UNC. One of my former teammates at University of Buffalo, Tom Beck it, was in the part-time position there. When he moved on, he recommended me. My role at UNC was a part-time assistant strength and conditioning coach. Uh, so I had a few teams to my own, but then I would assist a lot of the other teams. And obviously with my background, easiest one to put me with immediately was men's and women's soccer. And so I worked under Greg Gatt who's been with men's and women's soccer for 19 years, maybe 20 years now, and got to work with him and, and be a part of both of those staffs. So that was, you know, really how how that all worked. Obviously the experience at UNC was amazing. I mean, I arrived at a point at UNC where obviously incredibly established university when it comes to men and women's soccer and really just got the time to soak in just about everything around. The, the culture that Anson's built obviously is incredible. At the time, Raymond started to work with UNC. That was another kind of interesting wrinkle in, into all of this was, you know, Raymond doing some courses down in, in Raleigh and the, the staff being a part of those courses and then learning and starting to, to put in some of the, some of the principles in, into, you know, changing how, how they train and, and how they prepare. It was definitely not driven by me uh, anywhere near it, but uh, just to, you know, soak so all that in at that time of my career, which was, which was pretty early on before I got a chance to really see how it's done, you know, at the top level under Andy at San Antonio. So yeah, it was a really important part of my career and, and something I still have a lot of relationships with with all the players and, and coaches and I'm really, really lucky to have had that.
0: You just brought up the relationship idea. How important is that to be connected with the coaches, the players, all that even beyond the the conditioning sessions themselves.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think if you don't start there, you're you're doomed. I'm not aloof to the fact that I normally have it easier when speaking to soccer coaches because of the language that I'm able to speak and can see the game, and there's tends to be a more uh, more mutual respect immediately off of that. Where as other colleagues who are strength conditioning coaches, who are phenomenal coaches, they get painted immediately as like, oh, you don't know soccer. Uh, many coaches have that ex- soccer coaches have that experience that. They have a strength coach who doesn't know anything about soccer and wants to just do whatever they want um, and don't, aren't able to see the game. So again, I've been lucky, but also I think I've positioned myself in a way that um, you know, it becomes easier to have these relationships and conversations because of the way that I see the game. I worked with swimming at university of Pittsburgh. That relationship wasn't as easy. You know, I, I don't speak the language of swim. You know, I, I can take a step back and look at the sport and, know, figure it out and understand the muscle actions and, you know, the the bi, like the biomechanical requirements and the, you know, energy system requirements. But at the end of the day, I don't speak the language. Um, so that required some time to, to really, you know, develop that relationship or not have the time to develop that relationship. And, and, you know, uh, it just doesn't work out in that way. The, The same way that I know, uh, maybe you two either at previous places or, or where you are now may have that experience with, with strength coaches. So um, again, I, I think I've, I've been lucky, but um, it's, it's a concerted effort to make sure that you're speaking the language and trying to meet people where they are rather than just say, this is what we're doing. And it's not even a conversation at that point.
2: So Frank, I listened to you on uh Jake tourist podcast, uh, what seems like forever ago, and he, he referred to you like four or five times where people have referred to you as like the soccer strength guy. Like you're more of a soccer coach than you are a strength guy. Because like you said, typically we meet the strength and conditioning coaches who don't have a background in soccer. They're typically American football guys or every now and then you'll get like a baseball or a basketball or a wrestler. Um, Do you think that's a problem in the, the academia world? It's like the, the process in becoming a certified strength coach, or do you think the, the next evolution in, Strength coaches is to be sport dominant, but then have the background also with the strength conditioning as well.
1: Yeah. Um, God, I can't remember who it was. It's going to escape me. Um, I'm, I'm just blanking on the name. He wrote Governing Dynamics of Sport. Um, James Smith. Yes, James Smith. Thank you. Sorry. Yeah. He, at some point, he wrote, or it was in a podcast, I don't remember what it was, but he said it's going to be a lot easier for sport coaches to learn enough about strength and conditioning that they can be. Mm-hmm you know, that they can essentially take this over than it is for strength coaches to learn about a sport. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I, I do agree with that. I think that, you know, the breadth of knowledge it takes to be a sport coach means that you're taking in a lot more information than being a strength conditioning coach. I yeah. think to be a sport coach, you you tend to have this, you know, this breadth of knowledge across a lot of different spaces, um, mm-hmm. or you should, at very least, uh, have that breadth of knowledge across a lot of different spaces. Um, and then you become kind of that T, you know, that, uh the, they speak about in, in the book range like you want to be the t you want to be across but you want to have something that you can dive really deep down into yeah. um so i see that as a lot easier with sport coaches learning about mm-hmm. the strength conditioning and energy system um but at the same time i believe that the best performance coaches are the ones who really dive deep into the sport mm-hmm. um you know i'm lucky that I just love football and I love to talk about football and learn about football. And I've had, I've worked under some amazing coaches Mm -hmm. um, where I've just got to learn some incredible things at San Antonio under Andy and with Darren Powell and and Alan Marcina, who's now, you know, in the Western conference or in the, in the USL final with San Antonio football club. Like I got to sit in an office with them and in Nick Evans and um, in Juan La Madrid at, at San Antonio. And then at Pitt, you know, Randy Waldrum has won national championships at Notre Dame you know, they're a four seed in the NCAA tournament, shout out Pitt women's soccer, um, which is some some like truly amazing things. And then obviously Jay Vidovich, uh, on, on at, at Pitt on the men's side is arguably the most storied coach in, you know, NCAA history and, and what he's done at Pitt is unbelievable. So, you know, I've got to work with some pretty incredible people where they've afforded me the opportunity to learn more from the soccer side as well. Um, and it's just an interest of mine. So, I do believe that that is a, uh, that's a path that sports performance coaches have to move towards is truly understanding the sport Mm -hmm. and the requirements. And you can't, as if anybody follows me on Instagram or Twitter, you'll probably see more of is you can't talk about conditioning or strength if you don't understand what the requirements of the game are, but even more so if you don't understand what the requirements of the game model are, Mm -hmm. um, and, and how the team wants to play. So I think that's where it has to start. Um, there is a massive push for that in strength conditioning. Um, I might, it might be an echo chamber because the people I surround myself with think that way. Um, and they think of mm-hmm. that way in whatever sport they work in, it's not just soccer, you know, um, you know, the, the, the network that I've surrounded myself, um, shout out to side chick, uh, for those that know, uh, it's a, it's a group of us who, who are just around and, and, but we, we, we see this world similarly, which is, you know, you don't start with strength and then see how it applies to sport you have to understand you know the sport and only work back as far as you need and um i think there's there is a really big push and, and a movement towards that at the top levels um but it may take some time to, to trickle down you know and that's that's kind of the reality of where we're at
2: yeah so it's so with you saying that is very similar to what brian trump used to say where like the coaches need to be like walmart and not so much like the um uh, the outlet malls Yep. you know the, the walmart you can go to walmart and get everything in the outlet mall there's different stores for different things so when you do work in that silo where like this store store just does the same conditioning this store does the tactics this store does the recruiting you you, you allow all that miscommunication to happen yep. and so the the, the question they asked jake turrell one day was what happens if a coach leaves does it fall yep. apart right. and, and i think that's kind of what you're referring to like if if everyone if the head coach is somewhat knowledgeable in every aspect if someone leaves, there's not a, a, a gap. He can step in, fulfill the role until someone qualified comes in. Um, but when when you bring this question up, you get a lot of push back from people that are in high positions, and you know this is how we've always done it. And it, you know it sounds like a lot of people are just afraid to have conversations.
1: Yeah, no, I I, I would agree. Again, like I'm gonna keep you know, touting him in, in having worked for Jay. Uh, vidovich at Pitt, you know in something that so our department was jay as obviously the leader and where everything trickled down from um but we did in my opinion what i've seen at Pitt isn't done anywhere else as far as how, uh, in college soccer as mm-hmm. far as the disciplines that work underneath uh the umbrella of pit soccer you know and and he has created that and you know gotten the right people in places so that there's a system that it's running from but Felix uh, Prussell who is the head of sports science Mm -hmm. I'm sure I butchered his title I'm sorry Felix (laughs) Um, but you know he does the sports science at at, you know with soccer for the last three years and now he's expanded uh, outwards Mm -hmm. at Pitt but when he presents he always has a slide saying none of this we don't decide things and then push it up to Jay, Jay decides things and has questions and has a structure Mm -hmm. and you fit into it. And if you don't fit into it, you know, no disrespect. You're not, Jay's not going to come to you. You know, Mm -hmm. he's, you have to, you have to fit into what pit soccer is, um, or you're not going to be, you're not going to be a part of the staff, um, or at least an integral part of the staff. So, uh, and that's not from, that's not a bad thing. It's not a, like him trying to, you know, hold everything tight. He just knows that in order for this to function, or any coach should yeah. know that in order for this to function correctly, you, you have to have people who are feeding upwards into you know a system. And um, not to mention, you know, Jay has a master's degree in in exercise science or sports science, one of the two. Um, you know, just sitting, he would sit on the bike in the weight room before I started working with Pitt, and we would talk. And he's like, "Yeah, when I was at uh, when I was at Leeds two years ago." You know, we were talking about this. I went to LAFC last year and, and talked to the strength, uh, the sports performance director. And he talked about, you know, getting high speed running this way. Like he, his breadth of knowledge is mind blowing. Um, mm-hmm. But he wants the specialist to, to be able to do that um, in in their role. But it has to feed up towards, um, you know, what what the head coach or, you know, the organization wants. And that's, that for me is, that's where this has to start is, uh, is is a head coach, knowing enough, or at least uh, knowing what they don't know, and and mm-hmm. you know, g- giving out the responsibility to those, and just saying, "This is what I need from you. C- can you carry it out?"
0: The one thing and it too- also has to do. Oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead. The one thing I'm uh, I keep picking up on too is you said I was in the meetings at San Antonio FC. I mm-hmm. was in the meetings at Pitt that for me sounds like a huge step before, rather than it's a couple, it's a coach and an assistant coach and they come out and then we're just going to hand them off to you for 30 minutes or an hour, a couple of times a week. Um, just having leadership like that, that said, Hey, come in here, you're going to be a part of the discussion. How big is that for you when you're entering into that kind of, you know, conversation?
1: Yeah, it's, it's, you can't be successful without it. Um, because then it just creates that division of either you're doing different things than are expected, or, you know, now you're not talking about it because you don't have a chance to sit down and say like, Hey, what did you do there? Or, you know, what do you plan to do in these spaces? Uh, again, I think I've seeked those things out probably more than other coaches do because again, I love football. I'd, I'd sit, we'd get to the office at pit at 6:30 in the morning and I'd sit through an hour and a half of the, tactical and technical talk of what the session was going to be and what's happening at the weekend in, you know, do I have an incredible amount of input? No. Um, But are those things valuable to understand and to move forward? uh, You know, what the expectations are 100%. And so, and that was the same at San Antonio uh, for me uh, underneath Andy to, to learn more and how he applied the periodization. And then once he left, you know, to be the person, who is guiding the periodization that you, you can't not be in the conversations with, with the coaches as they're planning training. Um, and so that, uh, you know, I, I find to be incredibly important and I think it's, it's a huge miss, uh, if, if they're not now in the college game, when you have four teams as a strength and conditioning coach, um, it's the shotgun not, approach. yeah, it's not always possible. And, and it's not always the fault of the coach. the strength coach sometimes it's just the reality is they don't have the bandwidth to do that every day um Mm -hmm. and so a a friend of mine is a strength conditioning or was he's moved on since but was a strength conditioning coach at a division three university with 18 teams and him and one staff member um as much him and i are very similar you know we see the same what we see sport the same way you know we we understand strength conditioning feeds into sport like we are very similar but the reality is. He has to have a very general program. You know, he he doesn't have the bandwidth to create and run 18 different programs, let alone you know position specific or you know within those programs. So um, I'm not uh, I'm not given an excuse to the strength coaches, but but it is a real thing as to mm-hmm. as to why some of the, the reasons some of those things don't happen. Um, to be really honest, my mentor at uh, Robert Morris University, I came in and I was there for about a year and a half. Um, when I took soccer's over, uh, he was really hesitant to allow me to be at the pitch as much as I wanted to be and to be in meetings as much as I wanted to be. And I didn't understand why, uh, until later on when I realized that he wasn't worried about me doing it. He was worried that in four months when I left, that the next person who came in wouldn't have that interest. And then Mm -hmm. the coaches would be like, what the hell happened? Excuse my language. Like (laughs) what, what, what's going on here? and it knew it would just set him up for failure moving forward. So, um, you know, it is massively important to be in those meetings if you want to actually be a, you know, people talk about like high performance cultures or, you know, having a high performance department where everybody feeds into something and and is all moving in the right direction. Um, If you actually want to create that, whichever university says they do, um, then you need to afford people the time and space to do it. uh, And frankly, the money. Um, But if you're not willing to to commit to those things, then you're going to get cookie cutter. And that's just the the reality of it.
0: Let me ask this. It sounded like San Antonio was an amazing setup for you with a great leader and experience. What, what causes you to make the jump to Pittsburgh where again, it sounds like a really, really good setup. And now you're at angel city. Like what do you kind of hit a point where you're like, you know what, I think I've topped out in terms of what I can learn and, bring to the program and then I move on or is it just like this is what frank likes to do I like to go try new things and continue to grow my growth and and learning
1: yep yeah, probably a bit of both um you know at, at not necessarily in the way that I've topped out but um you know just to be really honest when you're really early on in strength conditioning you don't make a whole lot of money um so there is also a monetary factor of like when you're at somewhere for two years sometimes there's like a 80% pay raise somewhere else. And it's not a crazy amount of money. It's just the fact that you've made so little that you can make a lot more somewhere else. Um, that is one reason I'm not going to lie to you and say that it's not a, a factor in my, in my career. Um, one of the main reasons to move out of San Antonio is to be closer to family in Pittsburgh. Um, that's just three hours away from home for me in Buffalo. Um, and I say that, and then I moved all the way across the country to California, <laughs> um, but that was one of the major reasons as well as, um, You know, as you said, like I was in the college game and then I was like, I'm in soccer and I love soccer and being in it. And then it was like, okay, what am I missing by just being in soccer? And, you know, I that was one of the reasons to get back into the NCAA game to then realize, oh, crap, I really love working in soccer and trying to move back towards uh, just that. So at my time at Pitt, I was there for two and a half years. I started out not working with soccer at all, um, which, um, you know, was the plan to get me with soccer as soon as possible, but it took about a year Um, and COVID threw off some of that as well, uh, which was definitely interesting. But um, you know, so I went from working with softball and track and swimming and lacrosse and to then taking over men's soccer during the COVID the first fall COVID back and um, you know, be number one in the country for 20 something weeks, which was just unbelievable to to be a part of, um, you know, and make it to the final four in the college cup. Um, and then that summer I had, um, my boss, Tyler Carpenter move to Ohio state, uh, for an incredible job opportunity, um, along some of the shuffling of the new person coming in, uh, I took over women's soccer as well. So I had men's and women's soccer. It was a great role. Um, but just in reality, uh, it was kind of an unsustainable one, uh, as far as time commitments and, um, you know, the the requirements of having two in-season teams is, Uh, madness because the off days for men's soccer are women's games days and the off days for women's soccer are men's game days. So um, it just meant not in a bad way, but it just meant working seven days a week Um, and uh, then having another team on top of that. So I would say it's always been a mixture of, okay, I've learned a lot here and I see an opportunity where I can have a different experience, not a better or worse, just a different experience. The difference from San Antonio to Pitt was um, the population that I'd be working with, the sports I'd be working with. I've missed working with women, just to be frank. Um, like it, it was, it's a, a group that I really enjoyed working with and having just a difference, um, you know, a, a different stimulus, not working with like the same people all the time. It's nice to have a couple teams. Uh, and then, you know, coming to, to Angel City, the, the major thing that, uh, really intrigued me was, um, you know, first of all, the, the, the person that brought me in Rob Udberg uh, was Chelsea women's uh, he was an assistant and performance director at Chelsea women and just his uh, with Emma Hayes, who, you know, is uh, part of the Raymond Verhaen, you know, tree or however you want to put that. Um, So him and I viewed football the same way we viewed the starting point is the same way we could speak the same language and, and have all that. And then really that I was not, performance coach. I wasn't a soccer coach, but I sat in between the two of those and could kind of mend myself between between the two of them. And, um, you know, I can work on field with the football team and I can work on field on the conditioning side and I can also work, you know, across that through rehab and all these other spaces. So it was a really intriguing space for me. Um, and to learn from somebody that, again, I, I thought I could pick up quite a bit from. Um, and so, yeah, that's that. It's it's always a bit of like, You know, one of my mentors said, make as much money as early as you can, uh, (laughs) because it'll help you when you're 30 and 40 and moving forward. Uh, So it's not what I move towards, but it's definitely in the back of my mind. But then from there, it's um, quite a bit of uh, quite a bit of just trying to find. You brought up
0: the, you know, the the want to get back into coaching the female side what what is it like what's that what are some of the differences when you're dealing with the men's team versus a female team in terms of like do the exercises look different does the way you go about developing relationships and setting things up because you know a lot of people look at men and we're like we're angry all the time and want to get after it um what are some of the differences and why maybe does the female side of things kind of more for you
1: Yeah. I I wouldn't say it it is one over the other. Um, You know, I I love working in both. I've, I've, you know, uh, I I get, I I got asked this a lot, especially going into NCAA job interviews of like, you know, you work in the men's game. Like, how do you, do you treat men and women differently? And it's like, yes, but I treat men differently than other men. Just like I treat women differently than other women. Like um, I don't see it as like a gender. I, I treat this gender and this gender. Like we have some women on our team who, you know, want you to be straightforward with them and tell them exactly what you feel and don't sugarcoat it. And then you have others who like need it to be softer approach. I have also worked with men who want things really direct and others who will like, can't handle direct feedback. So, um, you know, like that's, it's for me, I, I I've heard this question quite a bit and I, I don't think it's, I, I hate to say it's gender-based. I, I I don't think it is, but I do think, you know, it's just human-based Our try to learn about the people feel, feel out who they are and, and how they best receive feedback. And you're probably going to mess up a couple of times. Um, but, you know, know that you're going to have to, if you keep delivering it the same way, then, you know, you're probably not equipped to be a coach um, if they can't handle it that way. Um, now, people who work with me uh, might laugh at that because I am really direct when it comes to like, conversations with coaches or conversations like with other staff members, I'm like pretty much going to hammer straight down the line, but um, I tend to be a little bit more understanding with, with athletes uh, in in trying to find and tote that line. But, um, you know, from the the actual technical execution of things, you know, there are obvious differences between men and women uh, in, in this space. Um, And so, you know, there's just different things that you have to be aware of. Um, when it comes to injury risks, when it comes to hormonal differences, when it comes to um, uh, like really just frankly, what's happened in the NWSL versus what's happened in other leagues, right? There's, mm-hmm. there's massive differences in, in, you know, how you can approach things, but I just, and any athlete wants to be coached really hard. They want to know that you want the best for them in their life and in their career. And you know they want to be better so if you start there and you do it in a way that people can accept the information I, it's I, I don't see it as too gendered of a of a thing
0: the other thing that has come up and been a theme throughout is raymond you know raymond for how how big of an impact has it been on you what what about it made sense to you what made you think you know what i i see what they're saying It makes sense to me and now i'm ready to rock and roll and apply it
1: yeah i um probably to my fault i hate subjective anything um like i i I hate anything that is like a feeling it just doesn't make any sense to me um along the lines of like i really like structure i want i need things to make sense and and to have like logical principles and so for me principle-based thinking is massive And that's where Raymond starts with everything, you know, is, is, you know, first of all, what are we trying to accomplish? And that is simply to score one more goal than the other, the other team. Um, And that's it. That's how this starts. It's how it ends. Um, And then from there, what do we need on a football side to do that? And then, okay, if that's the football side, how do we support that so that people can, you know, complete the most actions for the longest, most football actions for the longest amount of time and be healthy from game one till game 40 uh, or however many games you have in your season. And so that as a starting point for me just made so much sense. Um, you know, I've, I've worked in places that have used the football periodization six-week blocks and the model. Um, I've worked in places that are more uh, tactical periodization based with Vitor Friday and the, you know, the microcycle of one week. Um, a lot of those principles actually overlap um in, in the fact of you know ramping up and coming back down and understanding the recovery windows and uh understanding the taper into games but um in reality those principles are pretty non-negotiable and the fact that he laid those out in such a clear way for both soccer coaches and performance coaches to understand um that that really was the attraction for me and then obviously the language piece um I am an absolute stickler uh in in my own thing for language um my, my roommate uh who, who just stepped away we worked together at san antonio and you know this we, underneath andy this idea of like we have to use the same language we have to be really clear with our language we can't just say words they have to mean something they have to mean some, the same thing to every person um you know like raymond talks about uh, the word technique is useless like a oh, good technique well, what about it was good you know what what do you mean? What was the touch good? Was the, dis- was the communication good? Was the decision-making good? Was the execution good? Was it the position? Was it the moment? Was it the direction? Was it the speed? Like all these things that they have clear definitions. Um, they, they, they just make everything uh, more objective and, and easier to evaluate. So for me, like um, that's why I think I was Dutch in a former life is uh, like, I, I need structure and I, and I like to be, <laughs> I like to be really, you know, straightforward with, uh, you know, emotion is obviously very, very important, but we, for me, decisions need to be made logically, not emotionally. And that's, that's for me, uh, why Raymond's work just was, was so important to me in in my, in my development.
0: The other thing you've talked about is uh, especially at Pitt and even at San Antonio, like the person at the top is running the show and everything trickles down. how, oh do you get that first initial conversation so you can become part of the trickle down and then where do you where do you fit in on that pyramid um, per se that you can now start working and making an impact
1: yeah I, I mean the it, it's going to be dependent upon the the coach or who is at the top you know some are going to be more um, like this is what we're doing and find a way to come in others are going to be hey this is what I want. I want you to fit into this, but I want you to do it in your way Uh, and be a little bit more hands off. And I don't think either is better or worse. I just think they're different. Um, But for me, I think it's really important to be able to ask pointed questions and get really clear answers um, in the way of how do you want to play? You know, what to you is a fit player in? as a right back, what do you expect that they can do for 90 minutes? You know, are we expecting that our right back is going to be up into the line of five, um, once we have maintained possession in, into the, you know, final third, or is it that, you know, we're sticking with a bank of four, no matter what. And, you know, we're not expecting them to overlap or or to join the attack that very much changes what the expectation is of me, uh, and, and how I prepare that player. Um, so that, that's, that's one is asking really pointed questions about uh, what do you need each of your players to do? Um, if there's a game model document, it makes it pretty easy. You know, everything's right there in front of you. You go, okay, in this moment of the game, in, in attack, this is what the player's asked to do. Uh, this is what the unit's asked to do. This is what the team is asked to do. In defense, in the defensive moments of the game, this is what they're asked to do. In attack and transition, defensive transition. When those things are laid out, Um, it becomes quite easy to (laughs) bless you uh, to you're welcome Uh, when those things are laid out it becomes really easy to to understand and and decipher what those things are Um, the other question I think is important to be asked is what does it look like for me to train that player Um, because frankly some coaches are pretty old school and want you to run them Uh, that means there's not a football involved and the expectation is that That's, that is how things are done. Um, Do I agree with that? No. But is it my place to disagree or agree with that? Uh, No, it's the head coach's decision on on what they want. And that's a question I'll ask in the interview process. I'm not going to wait until I get here uh, to to ask that question, but you know, it's for me is how much can we do with the ball so that it's football action based and there's communication, decision-making execution. um, And that it's specific to what they're going to be required to do. Um, so, so I think those are some like two really easy initial questions that could come from a performance coach or a conditioning coach upwards, uh, in order to make that relationship much easier. You know, the fact is, what does it look like if your players are fit, uh, which doesn't mean that they get a 40 on the beep test. It means they can complete the actions for 90 minutes. Um, and then really like, how do you, how do we plan to execute that? Um, also from a training standpoint, what does training look like? Um, if you're Carlo Ancelotti and every day is a tactical session, uh, then you're probably going to have to run a little bit or provide conditioning exercises with the ball that are a little less specific to the game model. Um, if you're Bielsa and every Wednesday it's 11v11 for 18 minutes and there's a ball lying in the sideline you don't really probably you're probably not running too much outside of that you know it's it's built into the football training and that is really important to say like you know if we get the practice week right there's probably not a whole lot of extra that needs to happen except for the players who are not on the team Um, or you prioritize the technical and tactical and you don't prioritize the conditioning so the conditioning may have to be separate and that's not again not better or worse it's just different those two are those two are just different so uh having an understanding of what the training sessions will look like and the structure of the week um is incredibly informative to uh to what you're going to get moving forward um so those those three are, are are super super important and then you know uh in san antonio it was the periodization and the training structure was delivered by andy it was you know it was Darren was the head coach, but Andy was the—I um, I, want to say assistant head coach—but again, titles and me just don't get along. I don't remember anything. Um, but he was also the performance director, so he had a dual role in which he, you know, laid out the periodization, but also was a coach, was was a football coach. Um, and so, you know, those two roles allowed for more of the "this is w- what we're doing" periodization-wise, rather than my in my current role is going to the head coach and saying, what are your non-negotiables that you need during training week? Every week, no matter what, these are what we need to get in. You know, what are your like, Hey, we have to do five V fives to be competitive. You know, at some point during the week, I'd love to see a five V five so we can you know, get, get more actions in and, and have a competitive environment where they're, they're moving, getting towards goal and getting shots off and scoring goals and everybody's celebrating. Great. I need to make sure that fits into the week. That now doesn't fit into Raymond's six-week block. Um, it can, you can make it happen, mm-hmm. but there's you may need to modify some things in order for for that to fit in, into the training structure. So um, that's it's really important. That's I, I started with another question, but that's the one where I would really start is what does your training look like, um, and then you know again, what is it to be fit for, for your game style, and, and how do you want me to do it.
2: So just to, to touch back on that, so you you mentioned that, you know, the setting in and listening to the training week and how that load looks like, I, I know that at, at the high school level that I was at, and I know Karen's kind of concerned about this as well, and at the collegiate level with me, like those conversations never happened. It was just here's your set time, you go in there, you're with me. And what, what we unfortunately experienced is, you know, we had guys that, you know, trained and then they had lifting and the lifting coaches didn't know what we did at training. We didn't know what they were doing in there. Cause there was no communication and our guys sprinted at tra- training for 45 minutes. And then they go in there and do hamstrings. And now all of a sudden our guys hamstrings are weak for the rest of the week in training. And there's just a breakdown. So c- can you just talk about like how the accumulation of fatigue can affect everything over the length of the week and that if there is no communication between the coaches, ultimately the coaches are responsible for the injuries because we're the ones that should be relaying information back and forth.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I that, that last comment that you made is is an incredibly important framing uh, which is coaches are responsible for injuries. Athletic trainers aren't responsible for injuries. Strength coaches aren't responsible for injuries. The coaches are responsible for injuries. Um, and I say that in a way of not to put blame on anybody, but to say that like, that's, where everything needs to start from right is mm-hmm. is the communicate as you said the communication needs to be had across all these departments and it needs to make sure that everybody's fitting in and if mm-hmm. they're not then like somebody's got to be to blame mm-hmm. um or if that person has gone against the wishes of the head coach that person's to blame and as you said like well we didn't win this weekend is is that person fired now like that that, that is complicated right yes. uh it's not lost yeah. on me it's, it's not lost on me but it's it is Honestly, it's a hesitation of a lot of soccer coaches to work with strength and conditioning departments. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I do believe that the strength coach has to fit into the structure of the week mm-hmm. uh, that, that is happening for the, the, the sport, whatever sport it is. Um, you know, you have to marry those things up. I tend to like stack stimuli on. So I would rather, like listen, if we're doing a high-speed running day, um, I'd probably rather do the hamstrings on that day, but in appropriate loads, right? We're not just going to go like, oh, three by twelve on the RDLs. Here we go, give it a shot. Yeah. Um, but knowing that if I do it the day before and then they go to sprint, well, now they're probably fatigued from the hamstring work, and now they're going to sprint, and you know, there comes the sniper from from the top row to 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 get the hammy.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and and we don't want that either. But again, the communication of it is is incredibly, incredibly, incredibly important. Um, and for me, that means the head coach has to be really clear with their training. Mm-hmm. They also have to stick to the training. And if they don't stick to the training, they have to communicate it on the day. Because there's always the ripple down effect. Right. So, you know, again, uh, Felix would put this in all his presentations. He, he, he would do, and, and it was a really important note, uh, was um, at, at University of Pittsburgh, they have training in the morning. Um, I was always at training, but for some reason, say I wasn't, or maybe my first year where I had another team that conflicted, I wasn't able to go every day. Um, the reality was I knew that the game day minus three was this, right? And that was when we would try to get our lifts in. Let's use that as, a, as an example. Um, I knew that for the most part, I could get this stimulus, a stimulus X of uh, strength work in, on that and it not have a negative effect for the players. Um, I, did, I knew that by starting really, really low with volume and slightly increasing volume really, really slowly and um, making sure that there were no adverse effects, right? Um, at a certain point, you. this is a f- more of some experience. You, you know where there's no need to go any higher. You're getting the stimulus you want. The players are improving, um, but at the same time, uh Felix had catapult and all of the information that was that would come in and he would send me a text right as the session ended up and would say hey we got a little more than we expected today uh on the training pitch like we just weren't Mm -hmm. we weren't getting what we wanted out of the exercise so we went a little bit longer like just know that the guys are going to come in a little more fatigued than expected all that means is for me is I just cut off some volume you know Mm -hmm. the fact is the strength or the football work on pitch is so much more important to being able to score one more goal than the opposition than me doing an extra set of RDLs. Like it's not Mm -hmm. even comparable. You can't even, you can't even come close to thinking that they're the same. Um, But at the same time, you don't want to do that every week and just say like no strength training ever. Because we always do too much on the pitch. You know, you have to have a balance so that we can keep players healthy and give them a stimulus to continue to improve um but if it's one of those moments where they go hey we overcooked them today uh it might mean they that might mean they come in and they do some mobility work and and they go away like i know that's something you, you brought up jake tura and brian mm-hmm. trump like that was something that i think jake through his time working with brian was like it's kind of they use the red pill blue pill analogy yeah. of the matrix all the time right like you finally took the other pill and you're like damn like this strength stuff doesn't really matter. So um, well, that was going to be my
2: next question: is like, because when you're when you're working with the the strength coach trying to develop a time to lift, like especially in the college setting, you know we we played every Wednesday Sunday and we had to have a day off during the week. So usually there's recovery days because we have so many games in a short window, and then also you know they want the guys in the gym. So it's like, well, should they go in before training? but then that could potentially affect training or do they go after training? But then, you know, but then the strength coaches are not there in the evenings because it's after class and after training. Yeah. So then we're just having the conversations on like, just, we'll just send them in there and leave them alone because that's the appropriate time.
1: Yeah. That's, uh, that's probably more of an organizational. Uh, it's not problem. a perfect environment. Yeah. But it. yeah.
2: It's, yeah. It's, it's not a perfect world. But right. Yeah. No. Communication. I, it's that's it's where that's where it, it starts, you. right?
1: I think yep. you know. So at, at San Antonio, just uh, we would bring the the guys in uh, every every morning before the session, and they would do something in the gym for five to twenty minutes, you know, depending mm-hmm. on what day it was. And then we'd go out into the pitch. We'd finish out a more specific warm up, and then they'd play. You know, mm-hmm. they go into the training session um, on one of the days per week. We wouldn't do it in the morning and we would do it after. And it would be more of the strength stimulus. Yeah, the reality okay. is it was just me. I was on the pitch every day. You know, that <laughs> environment was more conducive to a really specific stimulus. Um in, in that way, you're lucky when you only have one team. Um, yeah. But that was for me at Pitt. Uh the best time to work with the women was before training on the pitch. Mm. So we bring out med balls. I'd bring out, you know, eight sets of dumbbells. We would do loaded jumps. We would do specific hamstring and groin work and quad work every warm up session, you know, nothing that would be fatiguing, but enough of a stimulus to provide some sort, something to move forward. Uh, and we would try to get some power work through our loaded jumps, our sprints, and our med ball throws. Um, mm. Is it perfect? No. But it was useful and we were really healthy. Um, I don't think it was just because of what we did, but I think it would have been worse. Had we tried to say, all right, we got one day a week, hour in the weight room, Mm -hmm. you know, try to get everything in in one day. Um, it's just not conducive, especially the college season where you're playing every three to four days. It's just not conducive to being able to do that, to have one session of it for an hour. You know, it's much more conducive to do 15 to 20 minutes every day and be really consistent with it. I definitely uh, I live on more of the um, on more of like the, the robust side of things rather than the I wanna be, you know, super optimal in our training. Like I really I want things to be super, super robust so that you can do it almost every day and it not be not mm-hmm. have a negative effect.
0: What's what does the... so one of the things that I Go ahead, Tyler. No, sorry, go ahead. I was just gonna ask. No, you, I, I was just
1: gonna say. I got the delay. <laughs> <Sing> it, <Dad. laughs> yeah. Go ahead,
0: go ahead. Um, I was gonna ask. So you've kind of been talking about the in-season look. How does how does that differ once we get to the off-season and like even the preseason? Are you training? Are you working with them more, or is there more of a push to just have like you just go play? Um, and I'll still work with you maybe once a week or what have you. know it's maybe a different at the professional level. Maybe they go off and spend time with family and all that. But even at like Pitt's at Pitt and, uh, you know, at UNC and Rhode Island, or, you know, Robert Morris, what does the off season look like? Do we need to have them in the gym more than what they were before or what's the balance that you get there?
1: Yeah, at, I'll, I'll speak to uh, the environment I'm in currently and then I'll speak to, to the NCAA. Uh, currently, uh, gave them two to three weeks off towards the end of their season. And then, uh, you know, I, I sent home in, in off season program, um, right now it is as general as could possibly be. Um, there's nothing position specific. There's nothing really specific to football conditioning. Um, it's really general. Like, don't think about football for a little bit. If you don't want to, here's something that can prepare you for what will prepare you for preseason, if that makes sense. Um, we also have about six athletes who are in location. And so that means they'll come and they've requested some technical work from the technical staff. Um, so they get to come in, work for 45 minutes on some pretty specific stuff that they wanna work on. Nothing, stru- nothing as structured as a team session. And then they'll come in and lift with me uh, after that session. So um, the, the football sessions are significantly less demanding from a physical perspective which means that I am able to provide a lot more, a lot more volume than I normally would um, than I ever could in season uh, as a way to start to push some of those physical uh, boundaries that frankly, you just don't really have time or it's just not worth the risk to do in season. Uh, So that's kind of what we look like now as we move towards January. uh, My assumption is that there'll be a lot more athletes in location because it's LA in January and why wouldn't you want to be in LA? Um, And so that means we'll have, uh, we'll have the opportunity to do quite a bit more training during that time and and more specific prep towards the preseason, which starts in February. Um, On the NCAA side uh, it's all over the place, right? The, they come back in January and you have about four weeks before you're really allowed to do football with them, right? You're, you're not able you're not able to train right away. Uh, So that time would be, strength work right take your strength work um you know give them epes and, and some exposures to some high speed running so that when they start to play again they're not completely uh destroyed and then you know for me i would see it as in, in what we i don't know if i'm selling out uh, pit here but you would provide them some parameters for like some pickup exercises that they could do together right uh so that they're still preparing for how they're expected to train soon but you're not overloading it because you're not coaching it and you're not pushing the, the the football conditioning of trying to get them to complete another action another action another action um and then you know you have your spring season that now runs from february until uh what end of april somewhere on that yeah, um, end of april right so you have that period where again that's an in-season period they're training four days a week five days a week um they're playing uh, at least at the division one level i think it's three game days Four game days, something along those lines. Yeah, we, um, we had four. four. Yep. so you have that. And then um, after that, they've gone through almost the same length of season they do in the fall, which is crazy because how short the length of season is in the fall. Um, and then they have a little bit of time off. You give them, again, some pretty generalized training. And then we were really lucky, uh, starting with the men's side. And then when I took over the women's side to... We had everybody in uh, starting in June. Uh, The the whole team came in in June. So we were able to have six and a half or six to eight weeks of prep before preseason. And for us, obviously the coaches cannot work with the players at that time. So I would go out. um, Everybody would have their catapult bras on at the time. That that was what we used. Um, But regardless, I would run them through um, you know, a warm up, some specific work for like hamstring and prep for sprinting. And then uh, on the men's side, Jay or the, the staff, um, there would be again just this thought of here are some exercises that you could p- potentially do because this is what it's going to look like in the season. It's not like a, you're running this exercise, but like here are some ideas. And then I would, because from a safety standpoint, I would run a stopwatch. Of how long the exercise should be, um, just as a way to prepare them for what they're going to be expected to do in preseason. We we know how rough these college preseasons can be, you know, two weeks, but not even ten days before your first game uh, is when you start. So the fact that we had that lead-in was was massive. On the women's side, um, we we did the same thing. We had six weeks. Uh, I provided more of the structure. The six weeks set up really really well to run Raymond's six-week uh, you know football periodization block and you know, go through the undulations of, of the field sizes. And, you know, uh, we did four days. Um, so two days on one day off, two days on. Um, and again, we just ran through, uh, like I gave them a menu. So here's a pat, get a passing exercise, put one together. Here are the spaces. I want you to do it. Here's the amount of time I want you to do it. I'd start to, I'd start to watch. Um, Hey, it's, Uh, An overload day in week one, we're going to do two times 10 minutes of 11 v 11. Um, Hey, we have 26 girls or 26 women on the team. That means four of you are are running one of the intervals on the outside for five minutes and then swapping back in for five minutes. Uh, But we were really progressive. Uh, We had really progressively loaded them in the way that they were prepared for preseason. They weren't starting preseason playing soccer for the first time and everybody's getting hurt. So uh, whether I got lucky or I got it right, I don't know. Uh, but, you know, it was an incredibly healthy team that was fit. And not, was only, not only was fit for game one, was fit and healthy towards the end of the year as well, which is really, really hard to do in, in college soccer, especially with most teams showing up the day before preseason. And it's like, all right, I hope y'all did the packet. Um, <laughs> and I hope the packet was good, because most of the time you don't even know if it's good uh so yeah we we i was really lucky in the fact that people were here and people wanted to play soccer uh when i say here i meant i meant a pit and and the expectations were set from from the coaches of like hey we we're gonna pay for you to be here you know we're we're some of you can take classes but in reality like come and come be a part of this be prepared and if not that's okay but this is what's going to prepare you best for for the season
0: you brought up earlier to the idea of like, even when you're at Pitt, when you first got there, you were talking about swimming and lacrosse, and, like all these. And you talked about how some coaches because of time constraints and only having, like, it's just you, it's especially like for me at the high school level, we have one strength and conditioning coach for the entire program. What are some things that maybe I, as the head coach of, you know, the soccer team, what can I do to help, maybe help that person out? Do I take on more of the responsibility of the strict strength and conditioning? Or is that something that, like you've talked about, the big communication piece where we kind of have to work through that?
1: Yeah, I I think there's two ways to approach it. Um, I think one way would be to go to them and say, um, here's what I need. Uh, I understand that you may not have the bandwidth to do this. Uh, but I really appreciate your expertise because I don't know how to do it. Um, is there a way in which you can you know provide me with some expertise and how to how to essentially lay this out right? How can I do this if I want to do it every day and I want to do it with some lower volume so that they can still play every day like what would that look like if you could do it? I know you can't, but what would it look like if you could? And then maybe it's that conversation or it's it's them creating that and then saying, okay, I know you can't do this every week could you come week one and do it for the players, do it for me. And then I don't need to see you for four weeks. Go away. We'll do it. We got it. I understand you can't do it, but like, I need your help. Uh, and then you have the bandwidth to, to do it. You know, if even if it's five minutes at the at beginning of every session, it's better than not doing five minutes at the beginning of every session. And then them going and tearing their hamstrings because they're doing an hour away from you. Um, so I, I think that's one way to go about it. Uh, The second one is say, hey, I actually really want the players to be in with you, um, but there's no way that we can do an hour because the last time that they've done this or the last three times they did this, I got nothing out of them on the pitch for two days, right? Whatever, whatever happened. Um, Like, what can we do? Because I want to send it to your environment. I think it's important that they're in there. I think it's important that they get that education, Uh, especially, you know, youth players. I think it's really important that they see that because, the expectation in university setting is they're probably going to have to do it. And even if they don't play college soccer, it's a good life skill to have. Right. And that's probably what most youth strength coaches will argue. Like they need to get strong. They need to learn these things. It's great. Um, then like, what can we do to pull back the intensity so that the players aren't sore uh, so that the players are still getting better, but um, like they can still be in that environment and, and, and succeed. So I would probably go about it in the first way because I think you almost humble yourself as a coach when you like, that's what uh, I've always been. I, I still struggle with, but I've always been taught when having these interactions is like go in acting like, you know, nothing and just like begging for help. And they'll probably be much more willing to help you. Uh, and then finding a way that they can still do what they need, but in a way that fits into making the players better and, and healthier. Cause that's the most important part, healthy and fit. So I I would say that would probably be the way I would approach it. But in the end of the day, you know, you're probably going to have to make a decision and it's going to be influenced by, you know, the school you work at and the athletic director and all these other things on if you want to continue moving forward with working with that coach or not, if they're not willing to do those things. Um, Sometimes it's out of your control and they say, you have to work with that strength coach. And now you have to find a way to, to make it work that, that you can keep people healthy.
0: You mentioned healthy and fit. One of the things too, that you see a lot out there is um, injury prevention. This is gonna help keep, you know, girls ACL stronger and all that type of stuff. Is is injury prevention, is that just kind of a, a thing that we like to throw out there? I mean, you know, what what's your take on, like this is an ACL program or this is a hamstring program or all these types of things that people like to put out there?
1: Um, oh God, that's a hard one to answer. Uh, injury prevention doesn't exist. Injury mitigation through proper loading and appropriate exercises does exist. Um, like the, you can't say like that set of RDLs save their hamstrings. Um, you can't say that loaded, that jump with a trap bar made their ACL better you know, are are more, less susceptible to injury. Um, But I have gone, I've, I've swung the pendulum a couple times in my career already of like, strength is stupid. Strength is everything. And I'm kind of like, it's in the middle at this point. Um, And maybe I'm still more on the strength is stupid side, but uh, I, I think that uh, Raymond talks about freshness versus fitness. Um, Like, cool, we got them to think of it on the muscular level. We got their muscles really ready to accept all this load and all this force. And, you know, their hamstring is like, it's all, it's all long and it's, it's super strong. Um, But then it's so fatigued that they pull it when they first try to sprint. That's an issue. Um, So if you're doing that, that's a problem. If you're providing them enough strength work that they are, are getting more robust by strengthening the musculature and putting them in correct positions then, but it's not affecting football then better. That's that's the optimal, that's what we need to to, to move towards. Um, I've seen it at places where there's no strength work done and like it's apparent that there's not been any strength work done. Um, But I've also seen it where they go into the weight room three days a week and they are useless Uh, so you, you, you need to find, you need to find the middle ground for me, but, but I do think, you know, injury mitigation through, you know, appropriate training does exist. Um, I, I hate to say injury prevention because some things are out of your control. Um, but, but I, I think it is an appropriate part of any organization and any, any football team is that, you know, you have somebody who has an expertise to make those people better. Um, and, and for me, sometimes that means lifting a weight. Sometimes it means sprinting and making sure they're really, like they can accept the load that you are expected to give them throughout the week and during games. Um, and I would err more on the side of that than the side of weight room, but the weight room needs to exist for at certain points in the year.
0: If we were to look ahead... You've made some, like, it's an awesome experience at is, is all stops along the way. If I said, hey, Frank, if, what's the perfect ideal place for you? Are you looking, would you love to be at, like, maybe a Premier League or MLS or, um, like, higher level? Maybe going over with, you know, now you've got that connection with Emma Hayes, like, going over and working with the Chelsea uh, FC women's type program, where are you kind of like, you know, I'm, I'm going to continue to learn, continue to enjoy what I'm doing and see where things go.
1: Yeah. I, I, I we've talked about this a lot as a staff. Um, so mm-hmm. it's funny that's brought up like, what's your, we, we say like, what's your mountaintop, right? Like what would be the mountaintop for you? Um, shout out Dan ball, a uh, close friend who asked this question. Um, I don't know if I have one. Uh, I, I, I don't know if there's like, I would love to be here. Uh, I'm a big AS Roma supporter. Uh, I could never work for Roma because I would hate that it might be ruined for me. Um, (laughs) So it definitely wouldn't be that, right? It wouldn't be a club like that. Uh, But just in general, I think uh, whether it's in the club environment, whether it's, you know, moving away from the club environment and working in the education side and something that's, that's another thing that I've thought about moving towards of like, I find the most value when I'm, speaking to coaches and speaking to medical professionals and trying to get people to speak the same language and and be able to do this. Maybe that's an avenue I move forward in 10 years or 10 days or, you know, 10 months, who knows, but, uh, or it's being, you know, the best I can be at whatever environment is asked of me, uh, on the sports side. So, um, I don't, I don't really have a mountaintop that I'm like looking towards. Like I want to be with the U S national team at a world cup. That's, that's not really in my, um, in my thought process, but you know, I'm I'm willing to accept any of the opportunities if I believe that they're the, they're the right place and we can all speak the same language and, and really that I can make the environment better uh, is the most important one for me.
0: The one thing that I've enjoyed about you is you're building this kind of network with, for yourself personally, but, you have your own website. You share programs. You constantly on Instagram are sharing things. Why? Why do that? Why is it important, do you think, for you personally to continually put put out and have like you've dropped probably 10 plus names already about people that have impacted you? Your roommate is someone that you connected with back in San Antonio, and here you are still connected with him. Uh, how important is it for you to continue to try to educate and get that information out? Like in little setups, like what we're having right now.
1: Yeah. I, again, I've just been so lucky. Uh, it's not lost on me how lucky I've been to work with the people I work with. Um, like I, I shouted out a group of strength coaches that I talk to every day. Um, I was having a beer in San Antonio with some guy who I'd never met and he's like, man, I should add you to this group. And they've been some of my like, it's funny. I talk about, there have been some of my closest friends who I've not met, you know, who we just talk on Instagram every day. Um, in the, but I've been really, really lucky to be surrounded by some really, really incredible people. I think a lot of training is really, really bad. Um, and I don't want to see really, really bad training anymore. Uh, I don't want to see really, really bad periodization. I don't want to see these things because I think it negatively impacts the game. I think it negatively impacts my career field. I think it negatively impacts, you know, people's lives um, you know, you have 15 year olds who are getting injured because of incompetency from coaches, uh, and that may ruin their careers. It may ruin their lives moving forward or, or set their lives in a different direction than, than what was planned originally. So, you know, uh, selfishly, I like people thinking I'm smart. So, uh, every once in a while I'll share stuff. That's, that's, uh, that's one of the reasons, um, two, I sometimes like to make money. So that's, uh, the, the second reason, but mostly it's, uh, I don't, I, don't make a, I don't make a lot of money off any of that stuff, I, but I do like to, to put them out mostly so that we can try to move the needle in the direction of, of good training. Because uh, I think it's, it's really important that people have reasons for what they're doing and those are sound reasons. And really we can keep people healthy. That's like that's the biggest one for me. I've just seen so many injuries, injuries just straight out of incompetency. Um, so if somebody can see a free post on Instagram and they get some value out of it. Like I had a preseason post last year that like kind of blew up right at the right time. And it was just like, wow, the amount of people who are going to see Raymond's principles for preseason, just because I made a stupid graphic with six slides, like that is huge. They're probably never going to buy football periodization. It's just not going to happen. Most of that information was parroted from his book. That's like, I wrote that in the comments, so uh, I don't feel too bad, but um you know, like the fact that that information is just going to be shared simply because it's on Instagram is 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 great. So hopefully, uh, hopefully, people keep searching for good information. Um, they can see through the some of the BS of some of the stuff shared on social media and and some of the old ways of coaching, and that they can really just try to be better.
0: Talking about the Instagram feed and all that, what are some ways that people can connect with you and, and follow your journey?
1: On Instagram, which is probably where I'm most active, uh, is at coach underscore Frank B. I also have a Twitter. I'm much less active on that. You guys can find me on LinkedIn as well. I'll, I'll try to respond to as much stuff on there. And then uh, my website is coach, coachfrankb.com, which again, if, if anybody wants to reach out to me there, more than happy to. You can find my email on that website as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm always open to these conversations, always open to answering questions as much as I can. Feel, feel free to reach out to me on any of those.
0: This has been awesome. And I'll share all that stuff in the description notes. I'll shut this thing down. This is Karen with Coach's Corner Chats with co-host Tyler Wickham and guest and coach <laughs> Frank Barone. I'm out. Peace. What a great chat. Thanks for checking it out. If you haven't done so already, follow us on Twitter at CoachesLet'sChat. Hit that subscribe button. And once again, if you get a chance, drop a review. It's super, super helpful for growing the podcast. Have a good one. Peace.